so this was a big box store. And there was a boy about late twos, early threes, whose mother refused to let him buy something he wanted. And he said, okay, mommy. That's what mom hoped he would do. Didn't go that way. He drove deep breath and he went, and you could hear this on the other side of the store. Now, I wasn't across on the other side of the store. I was nearby. He began to flail with his hands at his mother's legs. He's too short to get any higher. Flails at her legs, kicks at her, flops down on the floor, still kicking his feet like this and screaming these blood-curdling screams. And I'm watching this mother... She's backing away from his kicks and his hits, completely at a loss of what to do next. You could tell she was just bewildered. Now, I've been doing some research online, and I found out <clears throat> that some experts say the best thing to do in such a situation is to ignore that outburst. Kind of the idea that drain away his disrespectful energy. Others would say, change the subject. So he's upset that he didn't get what he wanted. Just change the subject and talk about where you're going after the uh, trip to the store. And maybe he will be distracted from his disrespect. Still others encourage drawn out reasoning with the child. Try to convince him of the unreasonableness of disrespect. Now, you may have a sense already that I'm not a fan of any of those approaches. And the main reason for that is because I think we have to decide what kind of child we're raising. Let's just get rid of the child. Who are we raising? Who are we trying to rear? Because when we answer that question, everything else begins to fall in place. And I want to try to argue this morning that we are trying to rear worshipers, not just kids that obey us, not just nice kids, not just kids that are going to be successful someday, not just good citizens, but rather we are trying to rear worshipers. And so none of those approaches are going to pour the footers in a son or daughter who desperately needs good, good foundation. Uh, just a couple of comments before we dive in further. If you've not um, listened to or watched the first message in this series from two weeks ago, please do so. And I'll warn you, we had technical difficulties that day and none of the video works really works uh, either on our website or on Vimeo. But if you go to our website and pull up the September 27th message and click on the audio, that's a clean copy and you can hear it there. We started trying to lay foundations and really I should probably clarify and say all five weeks of this parenting series are primarily foundational. In other words, I'm not here to be kind of a psychologist or a, a, a kind of a step-by-step -step, do this, don't do this, but rather what kind of foundation are we laying? Because all of the particulars, all the techniques stand or fall based on the foundations. And so we talked last time about the importance of prioritizing your marriage. 
how often when the children come along as moms and dads, marriage gets set aside and it's all hands on deck for parenting. And then we wonder five, 10 years down the road, how do, how do we drift apart? Well, it's, it's automatic unless we make the marriage a priority. And then secondly, talked about the primary responsibility, the feeling of the weight of parenting to rest first and foremost on dad's shoulders and not on mom's. And we see the pattern. I wish we had time to spend a Sunday just to follow this trajectory from Genesis on through the scriptures of when God speaks about parenting, he zeroes in on dads. He holds dads accountable. He holds them responsible not to do all the parenting, but if things go awry, he puts his finger on dad's shoulder, not mom's. And, and the credit to what's happening in the home should go to dad as well because he's the one who's going to stand before God one day, I believe, and give an account for, um, for the climate of the home. Uh, also, just to tell you that we have a kind of a mini library that we have, our mini bookstore out there this morning. All kinds of resources for you as parents. I brought a couple examples up. Uh, this changes everything, how the gospel transforms the teen years, what every sh- child should know about prayer. Uh, this is a, a, a study, video-based six-session Bible study on Christ-centered parenting, gospel conversations on complex cultural issues. And so there's a lot of uh, resources out there for your purchase this morning if you want to stop by after the service. All right, let's pray. And then we'll dive in our subject matter this morning. Father, help us. Help us. There are parents here this morning, I'm sure, who are at their wits end, not sure what to do next. There are other parents who are out of, their kids are gone, and they're like, wow, I'm just glad I made it through. And then perhaps there are some brand new parents who are thinking, I wonder what this is going to be like. And what a blessing to be able to come to the best father ever and say, would you help us not only to act rightly as mom and dad, but to think rightly so that the actions that follow are right, to lay a healthy foundation, to understand that we have been called as parents to serve the children, not the other way around, to understand that we have been called to love the child and not the other way around, to understand that we have been given in these children a heavenly assignment. And it is all hands on deck. This is not a part-time job. So for 20 or 30 or 35 years, we have a responsibility, a kingly responsibility about which we will one day give an account to the king. Please help us. And I pray that today your Holy Spirit would speak in such a way that we would leave saying yes have had a little help but also that we would leave today being reminded that this is not a solo endeavor or a dual endeavor by mom and dad 
that in some senses this is a triune endeavor whereby we are on the front lines, but there's another one in the fire with us who stands strong with us, to whom we can pour out our complaints, to whom we can cry out for help, who has even a greater desire that this child grow up to be a worshiper than we do. And so we trust in you to help us every step of the way to accomplish all that you have for us as parents. And I pray you would encourage parents, guard them from fear, and fill them with hope even today. In Jesus' name, amen. So there was a day, if you have children or had children that have left the nest, there was a day when you said, let's have a child. Now, 10 years later, you may have looked back on the day and said, what were we, th- what were we thinking? I remember Betty and I were married probably about four and a half years and uh, we were talking one day and I said, you know, it feels like uh, we're at a stage in our marriage where there's something missing. And she said, yeah, I feel the same way. And we decided it was try, uh, time to try to start our family. And it may be that for you, it may be that you just love children and can't wait to have a, a, a baby. Uh, maybe you f- feel like we just, we want to have a family and um, so whatever goes with it, we're going to pursue that. Uh, as some women have told me already, this is often true with women more than men, that I had such a dysfunctional, loveless home life that I want to have a child or I had a child so that I can, yes, give love, but I really want to get love too. Often that doesn't go well in the end. Maybe it's that we want to have a child to carry on a family line or a family name. These are the kinds of purposes we have. These are our purposes. But the important question that we have to answer is what are God's purposes or what is God's purpose? That matters way more than any purpose that we could have for having a child. So I want to take us back to a passage we were in two weeks ago, Malachi chapter 2, and look at verse 15. Malachi chapter 2, verse 15. Now the context, um, we talked more about this the last time, we'll talk about another aspect of this. Context here is that Jewish men have been divorcing their wives, and God's upset about that, Uh, We don't have clarity about this, but uh, some speculate that it was not just they were divorcing their wives and marrying other Jewish wives, but they were divorcing their Jewish wives and marrying pagan wives. And so he says, uh, beginning in verse 15, "Didn't didn't the Lord make you one with your wife? Talking to the men. Didn't the Lord make you one with your wife? In body and spirit, you are his. In other words, you don't belong to yourself. You belong to me, God says. And what does he want? In other words, what does he want out of your marriage? You you became husband and wife. You were pronounced so in front of many witnesses, in front of God himself. And what does God want out of that? Does he want simply that you would have a great time as a husband and wife, you get to enjoy lots of wonderful vacations and you have a 4th of July sexual relationship and, and you can talk with each other 
really well. What does he want? And this is his answer. Godly children from your union. Godly children from your union. This is what is all-consuming. When God looks at your marriage, excuse me, if he blesses you with children, and, and I would go so far as to say, even if he doesn't bless you with biological children, he still intends for every married couple to at least pursue children, adoption, foster care, because that's why he put you together. We could have a really interesting conversation about that because I understand that not all Christians believe this. But I don't know how to get around this. He wants godly children from your union. Now, how parents achieve this godly child, these godly children, how they can is what the rest of this series is all about. How parents can achieve this godly child, these godly children at home, that's what the rest of this series is all about. Now, this would be clear sailing except for one obstacle. Can you guess what it is? One obstacle stands in the way from parenting being like reclining on a beach in the Caribbean. That enjoyable. When the reality is, it's often parenting is often like trying to muck out a house that it's been hit with a Cat 5 hurricane. The one problem is, and many of the people that you live next door to and go to work with and your kids go to school with, will vehemently disagree with you on this. And that is that your child is a sinner. And you can't believe it when you take, it, take him or her home from the hospital, but just hang on and buckle up. You're going to find out pretty shortly. Child is a sinner. Look at Proverbs chapter 22, verse 15. <clears throat> There's a lot in the book of Proverbs about parenting. Again, a lot of it very general. And again, you're going to find a lot of it directed to dads. But it has a lot to say about the importance of parenting. And verse uh, verse 15, Proverbs 22 says, A youngster's heart, I know that's a word we don't use much anymore, so it could really include a young child or a teenager. A youngster's heart is filled with foolishness. Notice the writer does not say some youngsters' uh, hearts are, or just certain kinds, or ones who have been parented poorly. A youngster's heart is filled with foolishness, pretty much across the board, filled with foolishness. But physical discipline will drive it far away. You're like, "Uh uh-oh, we're going to talk about that this morning. We'll get to the second part in four weeks. That's the last message. We, talk about, we wait till discipline to talk about that, the last message, because the foundations are so important. The particulars about discipline really stand or fall based on that. Number one obstacle is sin. And again, and maybe some of you feel this way, that child's really not born with a sinful nature. There are people, even in Christian churches, who believe that a child is born with a blank slate, 
And so they can either go good or they can go bad. And it really depends on maybe your parenting. Uh, others would say it depends on your environment. And so if they have a, a nice, comfortable middle-class home and they have to worry about poverty and they, don't, they live in a safe neighborhood, you can really whew, can go this way. The Bible says something entirely different. In fact, David goes so far as to say in Psalm 51, verse 5, he said, I, I was sinful from day one, and not day one from birth. I was sinful from the time my mother conceived me. It's in my DNA. It's in your DNA. It's, it's in your children's DNA. That's the impediment to parenting as a life on the beach. So how do we lay proper footers that's really the essence of my message this morning how do we re, uh, lay proper footers and again it's going to depend on what your number one desire is for your child as I read things on the internet and I read books and I listen to the news and I talk to individual parents I, I hear there are certain there are certain code words and sentences that I pick up that tell me what your primary agenda is for your child so is it for your child to grow up and be happy? That's your number one goal. Well, you're going to parent accordingly. If your number one goal is for your child to grow up and be safe, which is becoming increasingly uh, the preoccupation of many modern day parents, I want my children to be safe. I've joked about this for probably 10, 15 years, but I, I don't think it's a joke. I really anticipate that sometime in the next 10 years, a state law will be passed that will require you as parents to put helmets on your children in the car. You know, now, growing up, we didn't even have seatbelts. You know, my dad would put me in the front seat, no seatbelts. You know, if there's going to be a head-on collision, you know, Keith's going to be boom, 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 boom. So we moved to seatbelts, and then we moved to car seats, and then we moved to not the, in the front seat. I mean, I even used to sit in the back of a pickup with no car seats. But I really think that that, that could come because safety is becoming a, a very important passion for parents or successful. I want my children to be successful. I want them to have a great career, get a great education so that they can have a great career and make a lot of money and be successful in life. Or I want my child to be best word I can come up with it, uh, to describe this is undisturbed. Undisturbed. You heard of the lawnmower parents? This is a new ter term coined about two years ago by a group of teachers. Lawnmower parents. Um, also called snowblower parents or bulldozer parents. They're parents who go ahead of their children. Uh, helicopter parents just hover over the child. These parents clear away every obstacle, everything that that might cause their child to fail or have a bad day or anything. Bulldozer parents, we'll call them lawnmower parents. Here's an example. I came across a, a, a site where teachers were weighing in on personal encounters with, home, uh, with lawnmower parents. And so this one's from high school. She says, a high school student was skipping classes and not turning in his work. His mother wanted us to follow him in the hall to his next class. She said, follow him, but stay far enough away so he's not embarrassed. And then make sure, uh, then, they, then she wanted them to make sure that he went to his next class. 
But don't confront him because he doesn't like that. She also demanded that since he couldn't keep track of his school binder, that his teacher should carry it to the next class for him. This is a high schooler. She also emailed and called the school throughout the day to check on him. That, that would do it for me. I'd be done with being a teacher. I'd go pump gas somewhere. And I think, because all the teachers I know anyway and talk to, these, they want the best for these kids. They, they want them to grow up and be successful and whatever that means. But they, they, want to, they want to contribute toward that kid becoming all he or she can be. And then they see this and they're like, this is not going to go, this is not a blessing to the child. This is not going to help the child. He's not going to grow up to learn to handle what life throws at him. What, what are you rearing your children to be? What's the number one desire you have for your child? Because that's going to dictate how you parent. And so I want to argue that based on this passage in Malachi, that God wants us to rear worshipers. I'm going to use that term instead of godly offspring or godly children because sometimes when we use the word godly, uh, we think of a person who is um, good. We think of a person who is nice, who is moral, who behaves himself. Well, what we're thinking about is a, someone who is all in for God through Jesus Christ. And we want to be careful. We're not just talking about wor- someone who worships God because an Orthodox Jew could say that. We're talking about someone who worships God through the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, we're not just laying moral footings for this child. We're laying gospel footings for this child as we build the house that will, Lord willing, eventually become a worshiper. I love this uh, definition of worship. It is valuing and treasuring God above all things. We're not just trying to rear a child who behaves himself, behaves herself. We're trying to rear a child who values and treasures God above all things. Now, if you're building a house, a uh, new house is going up right next door to us. They're about maybe two months away from finishing. If you build a house, you know that you have to start with the, 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 the concrete footings. Pour the concrete, and then everything else goes on top of that. So the cement block goes on top of that. Uh, the, the plates of the walls, the walls, the trusses, all that goes on top of the footings. And if the footers are not right, nothing's right. The footers are, are you know, cantilevered if they're slanted and the walls go up, the wall's going to be slanted and the trusses are going to be angled. Everything stands or falls on the footers. They have to be right. They have to be level. And that's, that's why how we approach this child fundamentally is going to determine what kinds of decisions he or she makes, not, not perfectly in their teen years, but in, in general. There's a, what kind of consistency will we look for in those teen years? A lot of it's going to depend on the footers. N- not everything. We understand that at the end of the day, kids are going to make their own decisions. But what kind of footers have we laid? And this is the main one that I want to um, teach you today. Teach them to respect you. 
If you get nothing else out of this message, teach your children to respect you. Remember the little illustration I gave to you about the woman in the big box store? Teach your children to respect you. How does that make them worshipers? How might that prepare them for being worshipers? Put it that way. They're too young to understand, and this is really, this, this effort becomes um, intense starting about age two or so, late ones, early twos. They are too young to understand worship that is due to an invisible God. At two, your child cannot understand the worship that is due to an invisible God. They don't understand worship. They don't understand an invisible God. You can teach them things that they can you know, parrot back to you verbally, but they can't understand. They do not have the capacity for abstract thinking yet, so they don't get it. They can't understand invisible God. They can't understand worship, but they are not too young to grasp respect that is due to parents they see and hear. You're following? So the, the, you're, this, is, this is kind of a, um, um, a poor but adequate imitation of God in the worship that is due him. Jesus said something in Matthew 15 that to our modern ears sounds incredibly uh, harsh, even cruel. But I want you to turn there. Matthew 15, verse uh, 4. Matthew 15, verse 4. So Jesus was going back into the law, pulled out uh, something that the law teaches about parents. And he says this. For instance, God says, honor your father and mother, and anyone who speaks disrespectfully of father or mother must be put to death. Not about you, but when I move around in society and I see the incredible number of kids that clearly have no respect for their parents, I'm like, oh wow, this would thin out the population. And, and just for the record, they actually used to do this. You had a 16-year-old son that sass his mom and dad regularly. It stoned him. Why? Why would God impose such a harsh, brutal regimen for a disrespectful child or a disobedient child? And I think this makes my point. Because God knew that if they do not, if this child does not respect his parents, there's no chance of this child becoming a worshiper. That's level one, God's level two. Now we understand it's not a perfect correlation. God's perfect and worthy of worship. As moms and dads, we are eminently imperfect and not worthy of worship. But because God has placed us as parents over our children, and he's given, actually given parents to children as a gift. Because listen, if there were no parents, imagine children on their own, no parents, they're getting killed left and right on the streets, they're, they're, they're being snatched off the streets by traffickers. I mean, there's a thousand things that could go wrong. Parents were given to children as a blessing to protect them, to help them, to nourish them, all of that. So, 
If there's no respect for the parents, God's saying, this is not going to go well as I'm trying to create worshipers. Pouring, pouring the gospel footers by teaching your children to respect you. That means, well, let me talk about a few things it means. And I, dads, I'm going to reiterate what I said two weeks ago. This starts with you. The mantle of responsibility rests on your shoulders, not your wife's. We're going to look in a number of weeks at what God did with Eli because Eli failed to correct his sons, discipline his sons. And there's no mention in that text of Eli's wife, these adult boys, mom, not in the picture. It was Eli, it was dad. Dad's mantle of responsibility. And again, this work is going to begin in earnest around age two. So a number of things. Uh, let me just put this as a heading. You should evaluate moms and dads. You should evaluate everything in your children. Behaviors, words, tones, and attitudes. So I have a list of six things that you're going to look at as a parent. First one is um, hitting. Hitting is out. <laughs> That's just fundamental. And most children will try it. And I would say they should try it three times. And by the third time, like, I don't want to go anywhere near that again. Hitting parents, an incredibly brazen uh, portrayal of disrespect. And uh, I'll throw in spitting along with that. That's a non-starter, moms and dads. That should be a non-starter. And we'll get to this piece in a minute. So hitting parents... That's not going to be permitted. Uh, throwing things that are given to him. Now, that's going to be something that is going to happen when the child's a year, year and a half, and so forth. But by the time they're verbal and you have a decent enough vocabulary to interact with them, you should be able to train them. I give you something and you throw it, and that's not going to happen again. If, you, if they throw things three, four times, the, clearly the respect isn't in play. Uh, third, ignoring what you say. Again, they have to have a vocabulary. They have to have some understanding. So uh, this is going to be age appropriate, again, around two plus. Ignoring what you say. Now, uh, be careful that it's not simply that they're preoccupied with something. It, it, is it that? Is it deliberate? I'm deliberately ignoring you. Uh, did they make, say, yes, I'll do something, and then they forgot and got sidetracked? Be very careful to make distinctions between deliberate disrespect and just being childlike. There's a way to coach them out of the childlikeness, but defiant, defiantly ignoring what you say is a disrespect that you need to address. Fourth, this is the one that I had conversation with our kids about more than anything else probably growing up. Do not allow your children to speak to you as if they would, as they would speak to their peers. So we would tell our kids, you can say anything you want to, to mom and dad. You can tell us anything. If you're upset with us, if you think that we are being, um, treating one child better than another, they always thought that. And they all thought that about the other. That's probably, that's probably indication that you're fair. 
But we would say, you could say anything to us. If you're upset with us, you're frustrated with us, but you must do it with a respectful tone. You cannot speak to us kind of snarky, uh, chip on your shoulder like you might speak to a peer that you're upset with. Speaking to parents like peers is out. The defiant tantrums on the floor, just going crazy, that's out. Lying, I think lying is an incredibly vivid portrayal of disrespect. I'm not talking about lying here and there, but if you see a pattern over time and they, it becomes clear that they feel they can get away with that, that's something that needs to be addressed. Now, those are things that, you're going to, that I want you to look at as a parent and to be evaluating. Now some things for you, some specifics, uh, specific calls to you as mom and dad. I un- have come to understand recently that there's a kind of parent- parenting that's being promoted today that says you should as rarely as possible or eliminate altogether saying no to your child. Again, if you are re- rearing a worshiper, that doesn't work. Because has God ever said no to you? Has he ever said no to you? Does he ever say no to you? Will he ever say no to you? Yes. And in the same way, we as parents have to say no to our children. Uh, Next, consistency. Never, ever, ever, ever ignore disrespect. Never change the subject. Never pretend it didn't happen. That's parental malpractice. Why? And this is true in general with parenting. Every time we are inconsistent, it confuses our children. Because they don't know if today's the day you're going to let X go and, you know, tomorrow you enforce the rule, the expectation. Inconsistency is terribly confusing to children. They need to know. How many children have grown up and said, I wish my mom, I wish my dad had said, this is what you can do and this is what you can't do. I might not have liked it. I might not like the particulars, but I wish I had those parameters. I wish I had those boundaries. And you will spare yourself and your children a lot of grief and anguish if you do the hard work when they are young. You can enjoy your children a lot better when they're older if you have done this um, spade work when, when they're young. Never ignore disrespect. This is one of the things, reasons that parenting is so hard is, is because we're always on. You know, we're doing what we want to do and suddenly we have to deal with an issue of disrespect and, oh, it's just so annoying. Well, yeah, it's a full-time job. It's not a part-time job and it's not for sissies. Fifth, teach them. Don't just correct them. In other words, you teach up front before the disrespect happens. You teach them what your expectations are, what is acceptable, and what is not acceptable. You don't just correct, just kind of catch them doing the wrong thing. Children feel very beat up when that's the parental approach. And sixth, no anger. Um, And I realize this is probably more prominent with men, but it's a it's a mom problem as well. If you cannot correct your child 
without being angry, then you find a place to get off to until you can be. Do not discipline in anger. Listen, listen to this. If you scratch the root of, uh, if you scratch anger deep enough, you're always going to find pride at its root. I'm not talking about parental anger. I'm talking about any kind of anger. If you are angry with your spouse, if you're angry with your employees, if you are angry with your children, always at the root of that is pride. Why do I say that? Well, again, you're watching TV, dad, and your kids are, are disrespectful, and you're like, you're irritated that you, who's so important, that you should be able to watch TV without your kid interrupting you, have to be pulled away from your show to deal with it. Or, I'm so important, I can't believe that you are making me do this. I can't believe you are defying me. I can't believe I'm so important. Pride, if you really sort it out, is always down. I'm going to talk more about this on November 8th, a message that says the gospel does not idolize parents. Um, we don't like, we're embarrassed, you know, things happen in the store and we get, we get upset with the child because they made us look bad. So much pride down at the bottom of our anger. Now, the flip side is these are, things, these are behaviors to watch for and deal with. Flip side is that we need to show them the gospel as moms and dads. We need to show our kids the gospel. We had a, um, a panel of parents about a month ago with Pastor Kyle and and some uh, teenage uh, parents of teenagers. And somebody asked the question, if you would um, do anything over as a parent, what would it be? And I said, this would be uh, the number one regret I have. As I would go back, and instead of just trying to make sure that my children uh, obeyed, is to portray the gospel in more ways than I did. Uh, f the first, of, I, to me, the most important thing that we have to remind ourselves every day, if God doesn't remind us, is that we are sinners. And if, we're, if I'm a rebel sinner, then I understand you, my child. I get you. If I'm a rebel sinner, then it, it, it creates more gentleness and more mercy for you as my child. I, because I know that God loves me through Christ despite my behavior and so I too can love this child despite his or her behavior I know that I still sin and thus I need God's mercy and so where's my mercy for this child and I am God's child forever because of Christ and so I want to tell you my child that you're also mine forever I I can't believe a parent who would tell a child I've disowned you you're not my child anymore you have done xyz and it's so awful I uh, we've we told all of our children I would in teen years usually say there's nothing you could do say or become that would damage my love for you that would diminish my love for you that would any way harm my love nothing and I've had some parents say to me well, doesn't that just open the barn doors that they can do what they want? I'm like, if, if that's the only thing keeping the barn doors shut, let's open the doors now and get it out in the open so that we can deal with it instead of all this pretense. I want my children to know 
You should want your children to know that there is nothing that could happen that would change your love for them, just like God's, right? Parents, your job not to civilize your children. <laughs> it's to worshipize them. And so you're going to end up parenting differently from some of your neighbors, from some of your friends. Uh, we sure did. As we watched uh, some of our peers over the years, we're like, yeah, I want to do that. You're going to be different from some of your family members. You're probably going to do some things that experts, child parent, uh, parenting experts will warn you not to do. And you're going to, on the other hand, probably avoid some things that the experts insist upon. I've got news for you. On your final day, there's not going to be a parenting expert standing in front of you, examining you. Let me take that back. There will be. The perfect father will be standing in front of you. Not the experts with their podcasts and their books and their articles, but the perfect father. And I don't know about you, but I long to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. Did you point these children? We can't make worshipers out of them, but did we point them that way? Father, pour out grace and mercy on these dear parents, for those of us who are grandparents, that we might embody as well as teach the gospel to this next generation and the generations to come. For your glory, their good, and their delight. In Jesus' name.